Acts chapter 6, we'll, we'll be reading um, verse 8 to verse 15. This is going to be a, um, a bit of a, a cliffhanger because uh, chapter 7 to um, chapter 8 verse 3 will be what we'll cover next. And, uh, and that is one long speech, one combined account. Uh, I did not want to uh, torment it by trying to cram it into the end uh, of one message. So we, we, may, we may spend quite a bit of time, uh, two or three weeks there, looking through that section of Scripture and, and drawing out um, some, some, some lessons from that. But we're going to um, just get the introduction to this event this morning and then see what the Lord has to say to us. So we're going to read uh, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray and then turn to God's word. Father, we thank you that we have heard your word. We thank you that we have heard from that which your servant wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, and now your servants have preserved it through the years and brought it down to this time in this place where we can hear it and consider its relevance for our lives. Lord, we thank you that your word is always relevant, that it speaks to us in the place where we live. Lord, Maybe we need to do a little bit of digging to, to recreate the, the cultural setting into which this was spoken. But we live in such times. And so your word is, is relevant to us. Father, I, I pray this morning as we read that, that we would not shrink back in fear and desire comfort more than we desire truth. But that we would take a hard look at what the scripture says and we would say that Jesus is better than life. That what we have in Christ, what we have in salvation is better than a life of comfort. That though we may not like suffering or opposition or dispute or pain, that when our faith is tested, you can be trusted and it is better to be in your hands than to be safe on the basis of the world's terms. We pray that you would rebuke us where we require rebuke, in those areas in which we have grown too comfortable, 
or we have let the weeds overgrow our faith, we pray that you would break up our hard ground. We pray that, that in those areas where we are doing well, that you would help us to uh, see that we are called to excel still more, and yet we pray that we would know your pleasure as our Father. And we pray, Father, in all things that, that we would know your grace and we would know that in all things that you desire our best and that you are working all circumstances in our lives out for our good and for your glory. And so we pray that there would be no condemnation here unless it is condemnation of our sin, of our willfulness, of our independent spirit that exists apart from you. May we submit ourselves fully to your will, your way, and your plan for our lives because of what you've done for us in Christ. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who does not know what it means to trust in the cross and in the sacrifice of Jesus for their salvation, I pray that they would come to understand that this morning, that they would know the goodness of knowing you, and that they would trust in you. We pray this. In the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. My, um, my boys, at least two of them, are swimming right now. Uh, when Max is old enough, or when, when Hank, rather, is old enough to swim, he will probably swim as well. Uh, in, in addition to the health benefits and the, uh, the, the challenge and the, the social outlet that this has been for them, there's been an added bonus. Um, for me, and that's that I don't just have to sit and watch swim meets, uh, because I, I volunteered early on to, to be a judge. And uh, I, need, I need to be careful here. This, this is part of the public record, and so I need to not take too much delight and joy in this. Uh, but part of, part of being a judge is you get to disqualify kids. <laughs> when, they, when they swim wrong, you, you may think it's swimming, how, how wrong could how wrong could it be? Well, there are thousands of ways in which kids go wrong when they swim. When you, when you swim the breaststroke, if you, if you are, are taking that, that arm pull and your arms go beyond the hip line, disqualified. If, as you are, you are coming off the wall in any turn, which requires that you be on your, your chest, if, if your arms or your head are passed vertical towards the back, you are disqualified. If you're swimming backstroke and you submerge yourself prior to the finish, you are disqualified. Two-handed touch on the wall is very important in some strokes, and if you neglect to do that, or if I cannot discern that you are actually touching the wall with two hands, I will disqualify you. You're allowed, as you come into the wall in backstroke, to flip over onto your chest and to take one stroke as, as you're heading into the wall, but if, if you do what we call supermanning and you're just gliding in, kicking, um, or, or continuing to, to take strokes, that is what is called delay initiating the turn, and you will be disqualified. You're allowed to do a whole lot of stuff in freestyle. I don't know if you know this. You, you can pretty much do anything except fail to touch the wall, or propel yourself off the bottom of the pool forward. You can stop swimming a freestyle race, touch the ground, stand up, adjust your goggles, put them back on and continue to swim and you will not be disqualified. But if you are standing up and you propel yourself forward, 
you are disqualified. About the only thing uh, that you can do, really, to get disqualified during a freestyle race is exit the pool prior to the finish, which happened the first time that Jack swam a freestyle race. He swam in just one lap, and, and as he got to the end, he was like, oh, look, a ladder, and he just climbed out. <laughs> and I was standing at that lane and was the judge over his race, and uh, the, the chief judge walks over, and he's filling out the little slip, and he says, What's that? Swim? This is my first disqualification. The swimmer says, or the judge says, what's his name? And he said, I said, Jack Meyer. And he said, are you sure? And I said, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> pretty, pretty sure. Uh, yeah. So I said, at least I, at least I confirmed my impartiality there. Yes, I disqualified my own kid. When it comes to the Christian life, uh, there, are, there are very few ways in which we can be disqualified. Uh, the nature of, of the gospel is what is called justification. The idea that when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes all of our sin upon himself. He is punished for our sin. It is put on him. And that means every wicked thought, every evil deed ever committed is on Christ. And if we put our faith and trust in him and we say, he is taking my place the gospel is that we receive his righteousness, and from God's perspective, then, he declares us legally justified. There is no way in which we can suffer the guilt for those sins again. And yet, in many places, we find condemnation of one sin in the scriptures. Jesus says, if we deny him, he will deny us before his Father. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, this is a, a, a statement, the statement of woe is a, uh, not like woe, you know, I'm on, a, I'm on a, a, a rough ride here, but this is woe, condemnation, judgment upon me if I do not preach the gospel. I do not believe that, that failure to preach the gospel is evidence, or, or the failure to preach the gospel is a sin which will not be forgiven but I do think that a failure to take our stand against the world and to proclaim the truth of the gospel when called upon or given an opportunity is evidence that something is amiss in our heart. A failure to display the proper fruit might be evidence that there is a lack of root in our lives. This is one of the areas that's spoken about in Scripture as a disqualifier. We ought to take great care as those who have been forgiven much not to presume upon the goodness of God in such a way that we turn his grace into an opportunity for sin. One of those sins, which I believe many of us commit and commit casually, is a failure to speak up at the appropriate time. 
Thanksgiving is a, a time when we gather together with families. Uh, we get together with people, and, and often uh, the conversation over turkey and other side dishes, the conversation will turn uh, perhaps to politics, which is a little bit of a danger zone, um, but, but it will also turn to spiritual things in extended conversations, and that means that this is a good opportunity to focus in and to share the gospel. I believe that Thanksgiving is kind of the warm-up opportunity to, to the big opportunity to share the gospel, uh, what my mother-in-law calls Jesus time, which is the Christmas season when people are open and ready and perhaps willing to hear the story of why we celebrate this holiday, why Jesus came to earth. And you can get in, if you, if you do this right, you can get in all kinds of truths about the incarnation of Christ and about him taking his, our sins upon his flesh. And, and you, can, you can get the story in and, and share the gospel if you are careful and wise about how you do it. My intent this morning is to show in the life of Stephen, his example of preaching the gospel in a situation much more hostile than I believe any of us have faced, and yet one which could very easily, very soon in our lifetimes, become the reality. Let's look at the situation here. Um, we, we recall, if you were here last week, or if you're familiar with the outline of the book of Acts, that Stephen was one of seven uh, Jewish men of, of, of a Greek background. He's not from Jerusalem. He comes from, from the wider Roman Empire. Uh, he's one of seven men appointed to the, the ministry task of distributing food among the widows of the church. It says uh, that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing wonders and signs among the people. This is interesting, I, I think, as, as a professional Christian, one who works in the church, many times what we observe is, is that, or what I observe, is that people get a ministry as a, as a Christian. What, what they do is they, they connect to the church and they kind of look around and they say, what are all the things that the church is doing? And then they plug into an area in the church and they say, um, I'm going to be involved in the Sunday school ministry, or the youth ministry, or the music ministry, or the, uh, the financial ministry, or I'll, I'll help out in this area or that area. And, and that becomes their thing, right? They, they serve the church in that area. Sometimes they, they don't give to the church, to the, to the wider work of the church, because they say, I'm giving of my time. Uh, and they neglect the responsibility to give. Uh, we, uh, we have not all been given the gift in Scripture of giving, uh, a gift of the ability, I believe, to produce wealth and then to use it for the kingdom, but we are all responsible to give. In the same way, many people will say, well, you know, I'm really good at behind-the-scenes kind of stuff, and so um, that'll, that'll be my ministry, and then they say, I'm going to lay off the ministry of evangelism. That'll be someone else's thing. And they pull back from speaking. Because they're not, they're not a teacher. They're not a speaker. They're not good in intense situations. They, they, they're, they're better behind the scenes. It's interesting. I think Stephen provides a, a, a test case for this. Stephen is a behind-the-scenes kind of a guy. He, he takes 
the second string from the apostles. They are, they are in charge of teaching and preaching God's word and praying for the people. And, and Stephen is given the task of, of making sure with these six other guys that everybody's getting enough food. But it says that at the same time, dispensing this ministry, he is full of grace and power and he does wonders and signs among the people. And he also teaches and preaches. There is a, a, a sense in which he is not content to just occupy some kind of ministry slot in the church. He has additional ministry responsibilities which he puts on himself by nature of being a Christian. He is out among the world sharing the gospel. This is a responsibility that each and every one of us has. By nature of being believers, we are, by definition, witnesses. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He says that to the 11 apostles. He gives them that task. But then we see throughout the book of Acts that that task is not just going to be fulfilled by them, but by the whole of the church. As the gospel spreads throughout the world, we are all called to the task of sharing and the tasks of ministering, even though we might not be equally gifted for them. We have the responsibility to speak. Each and every one of you knows people that other people in this fellowship do not know. God has placed you in a social circle where you are the only person who knows this particular person living near here at this point in time. And if you do not share the gospel with them, who will? I also think it's interesting that we see here that Stephen is full of grace and power and he is doing great wonders and signs among the people. We may ask, where are the signs and wonders today? I would ask this question, why do we need signs and wonders today? The perception, I believe, of many Americans, uh, of many modern people, is they say things like, if, if, if a sign or a wonder were to happen in front of me, I would believe. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke that even if someone were to rise from the dead, there are certain people who would not believe. Miracles occur on the cutting edge of the gospel. In places, I believe, where the gospel isn't and there are contests between false gods that do not exist and real God, the real God who does. And miracles happen to confirm the word as it moves into a new place where it has never been, not in a place where the word exists and is plentiful and is ignored by a people who fail to delight in it, fail to recognize God's sovereignty and his authority, and look at the scripture and look back to God and say, impress me and prove that you exist. I believe that for that culture, there are no miracles. Matthew 13, 58 says that Jesus did not do many mighty works in a particular city because of the people's unbelief. God is not a clown who makes balloon animals for people to delight them. He is a great and mighty king. 
And he's not going to debase himself and dishonor himself by doing tricks for people to convince them to believe. This is the situation. Stephen is full of grace and power. He's doing great wonders and signs among the people, and people are coming to faith. We see then the opposition, and here is round one in verse nine. Again, we have, we have spoken before about the, the enemy which can truly damage the church. That is the internal enemy, which is tolerance of, of sin and unholiness. That can truly hurt the church. We've seen the church dodge that bullet twice now, but now we see an external enemy rise up again. The only damage, the only threat that the external enemy can bring to the church is that the church would cower in fear and pull back, that it would deny its faith, that it would shrink back in fear, and that, and that the church would be damaged in terms of witness by not moving forward because it was cowed into submission. We see the external enemy rise up again to threaten the church. It says in verse 9, Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So we have Stephen doing great wonders and signs, preaching the gospel. And now this group of, of Jewish males from, from different synagogues rise up and, and speaks against them. The synagogue of the freedmen was a, a, a synagogue in Jerusalem. These are, are men who were at one point Roman slaves who gained their freedom. Uh, they're probably from all different places, but they had been, they had been taken from, from where they were born, where, where they had grown up, or where they were um, attacked, uh, and, then, and then taken prisoner and enslaved by the Romans. And at some point they had become free. They had traveled to Jerusalem and they banded together there uh, former slaves who were now free, uh, they, they had this uh, group, uh, they had this connection, this affinity with one another. Uh, and so these are all men who were once slaves who are now free. Um, I'm not exactly sure what issue they had with Stephen, but this is a particular representative group who's got a problem with something he's saying. There were about 390 synagogues in Jerusalem when the Romans came to destroy it. That's what the Talmud says. You'll, you'll notice here that there are multiple synagogues. We've got a synagogue of people from Alexandria, uh, a synagogue of people from, uh, that, from, from Cyrene, some from Cilicia, some synagogues from Asia. There are all people who are from the, the outside world gathering, and they notice this man who is like them. He, he comes from, from outside of Jerusalem. Stephen is a, a Hellenistic Jew, and they are like him, and they see him rocking the boat and causing trouble in Judaism. I think this is interesting. This is a bit about the nature of opposition. We see, we see the face of opposition here. These groups of people have very little in common with one another. You've got a, a group of people who segregate themselves out and don't worship with their fellow Jews. They worship in their own synagogue, the, the freedmen. And then there are the Cyrenians, and then there are the Alexandrians. That's another slice. And they all gather in different places on, on Saturday mornings, and they go to church uh, or, or synagogue, and they, and they worship. And they don't come together for common cause until they identify Stephen as an enemy. 
They have nothing in common except their desire to silence the one who's preaching in the name of Jesus. Uh, many times people speak of uh, conspiracies to silence Christians in the world. Uh, people, people speak about uh, plans to, to subvert the, the nature of the Christian influence in America. Or, or we, uh, we hear about uh, conspiracy theories, people in smoky rooms with charts and PowerPoint graphics. And here's how they're designing a hostile takeover of the world to transform things. I, I think that there could be a grain of truth in some of that. There are people who hate Jesus who, who their parents drug them to church and they, you know, they, they just, man, they're going to shut all churches down. But I think the nature of opposition is mostly satanic. The one who is organizing, designing, and, 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 and plotting the demise of Christianity is one who is behind the scenes and who is not in contact with the personalities involved, except by, by nature of a spiritual influence. These groups, they will not partner together and form some broader coalition who will come out against Christianity. They rise and join together to deal with this particular man, this particular threat, and then they will move apart and not have any common cause together ever again. You may find this at work. You may find that your particular uh, uh, approach with someone at work will anger your, uh, your, your Republican friend who is, who is not socially minded. Uh, he is just a fiscal conservative. It may anger your liberal Democrat friend. It may irritate your Buddhist friend. And they will all unite together to persecute you. But they will never go to each other's holiday party. What is the origin of that unity together to oppose? It is the spirit of the world. It's the desire of the flesh in them to silence the truth. It's the leadership of the devil. We will often, I believe, as Christians, find diverse groups united together in common cause to crush the truth. We see this in the life of Jesus. Herod, the hedonistic king, and the resurrection, Bible-denying Sadducees who ruled the temple, and the Pharisees uniting together to crush Jesus. These groups could not be more uncommon. And yet they find common cause and become friends to crush Christ. We see this with Stephen as well. Stephen's response to them, they, they gather together. Perhaps they have uh, some kind of gossip meeting, maybe some kind of pre-meeting. They say, we're going to encounter this guy. We're going to deal with him. We're going to ask him these questions. We're going to dispute with him. We're going to prove his faith to be untrue. We're going we're to get him from the scripture angle, and then we're going we're to get him from the Jesus was a troublemaker angle. We're going to take this guy out. His response is to dispute with them. And Stephen is unafraid. Perhaps he feels inward fear. I don't think feeling inward fear is what the Bible speaks about so often when it says, do not be afraid. I think what the Bible means when it says, do not fear, it means you may feel troubled internally, but trust God and do not act afraid. So Peter, I mean, Stephen, may have been trembling inside, 
at different points, but he disputes with them. Even though he is cut off and alone and surrounded, he stands against this crowd who is speaking down to him, challenging his faith, questioning what he believes, attempting to make him out to be unreasonable or a heretic or a troublemaker. He embodies the characteristics that Paul calls on all of us to embody when we share the gospel. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy, how he ought to respond as a teacher and a pastor of the church. And I believe this is an appropriate posture towards the world. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He's saying, Timothy, one day you're going to be held accountable for the stewardship of your faith, for what you did with the opportunities that were presented to you, your leadership of the church, the opportunities that you had to preach the gospel, the opportunities that you had to correct those who were wrong and encourage those who were right. He says, I charge you, you will be judged. Live this particular way. He says, preach the word. Let the content of what you're teaching and defending be from these words, not your own opinions, not the latest psychological uh, uh, breakthroughs, not the, the, the latest, greatest, best-selling book that Oprah is plugging. Let it, let it be built on these words. Preach the word. Be ready in season. That means when, when you know you've got to speak and out of season. That means when, when someone says, hey, I got a question. Uh, could you answer this question? Be ready to answer. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Defend these words. Correct wrong. Encourage right. And do it with complete patience and teaching. Don't lose your peaceful, godly spirit in the midst of debate. I confess very few things irritate me more than watching a Christian in a debate or watching a Christian sharing the gospel or sitting with someone at the table at Thanksgiving, and this did not happen in 2012, uh, but watching some Christian berate someone else or run them down or, or make them feel small or insult them or, or rip up their beliefs in an unloving way. The focus is more about winning an argument than it is about winning that person's heart for Christ. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Paul says, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, share the gospel, he says, fulfill your ministry. Be sober-minded, have a, have a clear-minded approach towards the times that you live in. Expect to endure suffering. People will reject the truth, people will cut off their relationships with you at times. People will, will, will say, I don't, I don't like you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Or they'll be like, you know, they, they will, they will 
uh, turn your friends against you or they'll talk bad about you. Or as in the case of Stephen, they will physically hurt you. Endure that, is what Paul says. Be sure to do the work of an evangelist. I believe that in a, in a postmodern culture, which the, the kind of idea that everybody has their own truth and everybody believes what they believe, and it's like, well, you're okay believing this, and you're okay believing that, and we all kind of are the determiners of what's real and what's right. I believe in this kind of culture, one of the greatest enemies that the, the church has in terms of sharing the gospel, or one of our greatest enemies is politeness and niceness. Jesus said, love your neighbor. And we ought to be, of all people, polite. And we ought to be nice. But we can nice people into a Christless eternity by saying, oh, that's what you believe? That's nice. Well, you know, they said they don't believe the Bible. What do I, what do, I do? No, it's like, no, okay. Okay, so they say they don't believe the Scriptures. Okay, what, what do I need to do now to go and to work on defending this? And I don't mean being rude. How do, I, how do I build up the truth of God's word in their mind? How do, I, how do I help them to see that this is reasonable and rational and, rational and good? How do, I, how do I build it up? Instead of just being polite and saying, well, I guess we can't talk about that anymore. Boy, what am I going to do? They said they don't want to talk about the Bible. No, no, no. We have a, a ministry. We're called to share these words. That is first and foremost our business. And sometimes being polite and nice is being unloving. And we need to get around that. Notice the response here. We've got Stephen, who is a, a bold, passionate guy who understands his faith, and he is, he is disputing with them. It says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen's got two weapons in his arsenal here. The first is he possesses wisdom. He is armed with knowledge, with, with the knowledge not just of, of book learning, but also of life experience and, and, and a history of following the Lord. He's armed with knowledge. Maybe some of you had the opportunity to share the gospel over Thanksgiving uh, or recently you had an opportunity to share the gospel at work and, and when you got ready to speak or after you started speaking, you choked. Right? You were, you were sharing something and, they, and somebody pushed back or they asked you a question or they challenged you and you were like, ah! You know that, that, that kind of weird feeling that rises up for your stomach and it, it like travels up your esophagus into your voice box and you suddenly can't speak and you're like, I've had this tongue for all these years and all of a sudden it's not working. I could talk for 45 minutes or longer on Sunday morning and now I'm trying to share my faith with somebody and it's like, oh, everything's failing here. Why is that? Many times the reason that we choke is because we're not in the practice of sharing our faith with anybody. We've never said these things out loud. We've never articulated what we believe about the gospel. And so we're not ready to actually say it when it, when it comes down to it. Maybe part of the reason that we choke is we're used to absorbing teaching about Jesus and about the Bible from what other people say or what we listen to, what goes in through our ears, and, and we're not reading for ourselves. Or we're not discussing these things with our spouse or with our friends. Maybe one of the reasons why we choke is you've never read a book 
written by someone who you disagree with about your faith, or that you've never read a book about your faith on a subject that challenges you, like how God can be completely sovereign and yet good at the same time, or, or you've always had doubts about creation and, and you've, you've just never challenged it, or, or you're like, can I really trust this book? Can I really trust that these words are the words of God? And, and rather than digging into it, you're like, well, maybe next week I'll deal with it. I'll make a New Year's resolution to read a book. And then it's like, oh, it's almost January, February. I'm not going to get to it in 2013. Stephen possessed wisdom. It's not that God opened up his mind spiritually and just dumped a shovel full of stuff to say in there. The beginning of wisdom, the book of Proverbs says, is get wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom, digging it out from the ground. Going and, and harvesting it, mining it, is the way that Job puts it. Digging down and, and finding out the truth. Let me encourage you with, with Jesus' time coming. Okay, Maybe you had the experience of, of Thanksgiving and you were like, oh, I wish I knew more and I was ready to share. How many days until Christmas? You've got time. Get yourself a good book about, about the faith like the, the Josh McDowell's classic, More Than a Carpenter. Excellent book that covers all kinds of topics in, in brief about our faith and about why we can trust uh, God's word and why we believe that Jesus is raised from the dead and all kinds of good answers. Christmas is a big-time gospel-sharing opportunity. Don't fail because of lack of preparation. You may fail. You may, you may try to... To, to scale the wall and to get the truth in there. And somebody might just be like well-practiced in their religious defense kung fu and just like deflect you. You're like, let's talk about Jesus. And they're like, let's not. You know, and you're like, ah, what do I do? It's like, go, go, to, go share with somebody else. But, but don't, don't, don't not be able to share because of lack of practice. Is your faith in your own conception you, you've been raised to believe this, or, or you, you decided that your life works with, with Jesus in it, and, and your faith has taken on this kind of Christmas ornament quality, like it's this nice thing to have in your life. But, but you've got to be really careful with it, or you could break it. Is, is your faith like that, or is it like whoever that sculptor is who carved the statue of David? Michelangelo? Is that him? Every now and again, some radical dude gets it in his mind that he's going to go hit this thing with a hammer. Have you, ever, have you seen this? There's article, like an article every two years or three years. Somebody goes in a hall's off and takes a swing at David. And uh, man, I can't tell you how many times they've hit him. He still looks the same. Because he's made out of rock. Your faith is more like that than it is a Christmas ornament. You can smash it and push on it and dig into it. You can, you can dredge the depths of this book. And you know what you will find as you dig into it? It won't be like, it's all untrue. You're not going to find that. But you might be really nervous about that. Like, like what if I read a book by some atheist and he, he convinces me that God's word isn't true? Well, the devil wants to convince you it's not true, but there are lots of good and godly people out there who've dug into the depths of this book and the writing of it and all the texts and the translations. And you know what they emerge on the other end of their study with? Great confidence that God's word is true. Many people like Frank Morrison, 
who wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? Who, he set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the end of his writing, he was like, whoa, this is true. This happens a lot. Your faith is strong. What you believe in is strong. But maybe you don't possess the wisdom and the knowledge to believe that it's as strong as it is. Let me encourage you to get wisdom. Dig in and don't wait. That's the first weapon is wisdom. The second weapon that he possesses is spirit, a proper spirit. Paul lays out to Timothy the proper spirit of the minister. And we are all ministers of Christ. We all have a ministry. The ministry of, of the pastors of the church is to equip the people for the work of service. The ministry of the people is to serve others. A main part of this is the word ministry that we all have to those who believe and those who do not. We must possess and carry that ministry out with the right spirit. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, and faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Right? You know what that means? That means no one to check out of that ridiculous discussion on Facebook or email. Just know when to back away from the goofy conversation and say, you know, this is not worth my time. Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't let them trample on it. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant co controversies. Why? You know that they breed quarrels. But then he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? Why ought the Christian to be most possessed of a peaceful, kind, loving spirit when interacting with those who don't believe? Notice what Paul says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If God grants someone repentance, you do not want to be that obnoxious person in their history who they cannot come to and share what they are struggling with or learning. You don't want to be the bridge that was burned. You want to be the bridge to Christ so that they're like, I understand what we've been talking about. I'm going to, could you help me understand some more of this? Even if they're obnoxious and ridiculous with some of their questions about faith, some people oppose in a very vocal, dynamic, ridiculous way because they want to know that they're safe and that they can ask any question and they can truly trust you. Keep that door open. Possess the right spirit in the way that you correct them, the way that you argue with them, the way that you try to teach them, the way that you endure things that, that people who do not believe say and do to you. Keep the door open. Possess wisdom and possess the right spirit. I believe that the possession of wisdom, though hard, is easier than the possession of a right spirit. You may be thinking at this point, but that still leaves me with the fear of, of, of having to speak and to, to, to break the silence and to share. That's true. This has always been a problem. You jump back to Exodus chapter 4. 
God has told Moses, I will be with you. I will give you these signs. You will go before Pharaoh and you will lead my people out. Moses answers God. He says, behold, the people will not believe me. They will not listen to my voice. They will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And then God says, I'll give you all these signs. I'll give you these powers. You can use them. But then after receiving these signs, Moses then says back to the Lord in verse 10, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past. Since you have spoken to your servant, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, and so I'm not going to do it. Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Jesus said, don't worry about preparing what you will say in the day when people drag you before rulers and leaders and authority. The Holy Spirit will give you what it is that you are to say. The telling of the tale with Moses, though, is in verse 13, where Moses says, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. What it really comes down to is he says, I don't want to do this. And it says in verse 14 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. We have been saved. We have been called to Christ. We have been called to God by God's grace and his grace mercy and his goodness, and we have been forgiven of great debts, and God calls us in response to that to share the goodness of what he's done. How could we say no? How rebellious of us to refuse. Stephen is undefeatable. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, and so we see the opposition round Two, it says in verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him. This means they grabbed him violently. They brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Verse 15, that's the cliffhanger. We're going to see what happens next, next week. But, but summing up what's going on here, notice what happens when they cannot defeat him. They decide that they are going to destroy him. They trump up the same charges that were brought against Jesus. Mark 14, 58. We have heard him, that is Jesus, say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. When Jesus said, destroy this temple, we find this in John chapter 2, verse 19 and following. He was speaking of his own body, saying, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. But they took him to mean the physical temple, an idea that they would find extremely offensive in that context. In verses 13 and 14, we see the kinds of charges that are brought against Stephen, the kinds of things that would incense and enrage the ruling party, which would anger the people. Stephen's preaching and teaching, they say, challenges the authority of the Pharisees, the customs that the fathers gave. He speaks against the laws of Moses, and he speaks against the importance of the physical 
temple. Now, these may not be big issues in our culture today, folks, but you know what? The opposition that you're going to face in sharing Christ is going to be on all these issues that we think might be on the, the periphery. They might not be of primary, primary doctrinal importance, but you know what? People will say, you believe that book, and therefore you believe these ideas which we find offensive. And the kinds of things that, that people will drag out to, to pull away your influence or to make people hate you in modern culture are things like the sinfulness of all humanity. Are you saying that there's not a single good person in the whole world? Not even Mother Teresa? No, there's nobody good? From the sense of goodness that somebody can earn righteousness before God? Yes, that's what the Bible says. We believe that. We believe what Mother Teresa did was good in one sense, but not good enough to earn salvation. We believe in the sinfulness of all humanity. We believe that God judges all sins. This book teaches that Jesus is the only way. What about people who've never heard? Are you prepared to answer that question? What about the idea of special creation? People will say, you don't believe in evolution? You don't, you don't believe that you don't believe that this is the result of natural processes? Science proves that, they'll say. We believe in the authority of God's word. We believe that in a world of religious truths, this is the only truth. We believe that the punishment for rejecting God is eternal, separated from the goodness and grace of God in hell. We believe that homosexuality is an unacceptable lifestyle. The Bible speaks of a whole host of things and says those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we say no to certain kinds of behavior. We believe in submission. We're called to defend, brothers and sisters, the Bible at every point. Let me read you a quote from, a, from a, an article as I was reading it. This just unraveled me earlier this year, and it has driven a lot of my thinking. And then I'm going I'm to finish up. This is what Pastor Doug Wilson says. He says, If those who hate the Word of God can succeed in getting Christians to be embarrassed by any portion of the Word of God, then that portion will continually be employed as a battering ram against the godly principles that are currently under attack. In our day, three of the principal issues are abortion, feminism, and homosexuality. If we respond to the embarrassing parts of Scripture by saying, well, that was then, this is now, we will quickly discover that unembarrassed progressives can play that game even more effectively than embarrassed conservatives can. Paul prohibited eldership to women, that was then. This is now. Moses condemned homosexuality. That was then. This is now. And they will undo everything using those embarrassing parts of Scripture. Are you prepared in terms of wisdom to say, not only do I understand these truths, but I understand that the honor and the dignity and the glory of God is tied up in defending these doctrines? And that if I say, I didn't write the Bible, don't shoot at me, I'm not responsible for the message. What we're saying is, I'm embarrassed by that and really wish it weren't there. Do you love the God who saved you? Do you love the Jesus who hangs on the cross and takes your sin? Are you willing to 
to push into the scripture and to understand those things that make you uncomfortable. Oh, the world will break out its sophisticated argumentation and they will clutch at their pearls with hysteria when you defend the truths of God's word. And they will use ad hominem attacks. They will say, what kind of church do you go to anyway? Oh, you're a Baptist, right? As if that disqualifies any intelligent thought that you ever had. They'll say, are you a creationist? And you'll be like, yeah. And they'll be like, oh, ignore you then mocking and conspiring against you. These are the kinds of things that the, that the world brings out when we reveal what we believe. And if we are embarrassed, we open the door to further attack. Let me sum up two passages of Scripture and then encourage you. John 15, 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But remember, or but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, or the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so expect trouble when you share the gospel. It's a sign that you're sharing it right, okay? Unless you're being totally obnoxious, in which case it's a sign that you're doing it wrong. The only way to fail is to be disqualified by not finishing the race, by not testifying. This is what we've been called to, whether times are peaceful or times are hostile. And even now, even in this culture that we live in, which we see the decline of the Christian worldview, it is still relatively comfortable conditions for sharing the gospel. Why would we not take advantage of that? For the good of those we're sharing with, for the glory of our Savior, and for our eternal joy. Will you pray with me as we close? Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters, and I, I thank you uh, that they have received this word. I pray, Lord, as, as some hard things have been spoken and perhaps some challenges have been, have been thrown out there, I pray that you will not allow the devil to steal the seed of <coughs> what they have heard this morning from them. I, play, I pray that, that those who have, who have determined that they're going to speak with somebody about learning more. I pray that, that they would not forget that. I pray that those who, who are going to dig in, and whether it's buy some books or, uh, or, or meet up with somebody to discuss learning more or how to defend their faith, that sort of thing, I pray that they would not fall short of that because of lunch or football or uh, Christmas shopping or any of the things which distract. I pray instead that, that the the roots from the seeds that you've planted this morning would grow deep. Lord, it is a terrifying thing 
to be asked to stand for you in our, in our job or amongst non-Christian family or even perhaps among our, our best friend or for some their spouse. But I pray that you would give grace and a gentle spirit and wise words to all who call upon you in faith that they might be able to share faithfully and fully and satisfactory that you might be glorified. Lord, our task is to witness. I pray that each one would embrace that as a, as a life calling and that they would not fail to, to make a good profession in a, in a time of stress. Lord, I thank you for each person here. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who, who has felt conviction of their sins and, and who needs to confess, I pray that they would come and speak to someone or, or perhaps pray on their own. If somebody wants to, 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 to express faith in Christ for the first time, I pray that they would do that, calling upon you who gives life, and that they would then seek someone out to tell them. Lord, we pray for opportunities this holiday season that we might share, that we might bring the truth of the gospel to all who need to hear it. And that life may begin because we were brave enough to share your word, which accomplishes its purpose every time it's proclaimed. Mm. Lord, we thank you. We pray your blessing on the remainder of our service and on, 